0: Hello, I'm with Mark Solms. Hi, Mark. Hi. So, Mark, how does your background in neuroscience affect your work as an analyst? Um, I think
1: that it affects my work um, as an an analyst
0: um,
1: probably less than people would like it to do. Um, And when I say that, I mean most of my analytical colleagues seem to want from the neurosciences immediate results which will change what they do. And I think that this is a reflection of the fact that psychoanalysis today uh, uh, has become a kind of a professional trade, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's um, um, a, a professional skill rather, like, somewhat like the skills of a dentist, that you, 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 you learn how to do the technique and then you open up your practice and you get patients and you practice your technique on them. But but psychoanalysis wasn't meant to be like that It wasn't originally envisaged like that It was originally thought of rather as A a way of coming to understand the the, the mind It was was a a discipline rather than, than than merely a therapeutic procedure The therapeutic procedure was an application of knowledge Acquired through investigation Systematic investigation of the structure and functions of the mind So um, I think that the, my background in the neurosciences makes me probably do psych- approach my clinical work as an analyst more like the early analysts approach their clinical work than like my current uh, uh, colleagues. I think that I look upon my clinical work uh, through the through the assumptions um, and through the the, the um, uh, scientific background that was actually. Uh, common among the first generations of analysts, like Freud himself.
0: Yes, so, so not a trade, not a system of techniques, of tools, not something that's generally s- simply oriented uh, toward curing people, but a whole theory, yeah. an approach, an outlook.
1: Yeah. A whole theory, approach, and outlook, and a theory subject to revision in the light of unfolding evidence. So, um, the where, where I, th- I think that I look up, I, I work uh, clinically um, always with this in mind. in what way is what my th- in what way is what I'm seeing consistent with my theory? My theory about this particular patient in this session, or my theory about this particular patient, Uh, as an individual or uh, broader than that, my theory about this disorder that this patient appears to be suffering from and beyond that, my theory of how the mind works. And all of that is influenced all the time by by what I've learned as a neuroscientist about how the mind works. But in that respect, I'm no different from the early analysts. You see, they also started with certain theoretical assumptions and they then tested them against clinical
0: experience. So the, uh, the approach of a scientist is that uh, you're getting feedback about the theory. Yes. As you're, you're n- you don't have a set of tools that you're using that you know are going to work.
1: That's right. So rather than applying, uh, applying a theory um, and uh, doing it like you were taught at school, instead you're testing a theory mm-hmm. and revising it in the light of ongoing experience. So... Um, um, the, the, the first thing I'm saying in response to your question is that I think that the way that I work as an analyst is not something novel. I think it's the way that we all used to work as analysts in the early days of psychoanalysis. Um, I think that why I'm doing it differently from my colleagues today is that we as a discipline have lost sight. Of what we originally were which was a, a science and and, and, a, and a systematic discipline trying to understand how the mind works and we've become more of a of a, of a school of, um, of, of of skills
0: so a lot of your experience both as a researcher and as a clinician is with people who have severe damage yes um, how does how has this influenced you or what What has happened as you've done that?
1: Well, um, that's correct. There are two very different kinds of clinical work that I do. The one kind is working as an analyst with neurological patients, with patients who have brain lesions, and the other kind is working with with the more typical uh, psychological or psychiatric uh, patients. And... um, uh, when I work with the patients with neurological lesions, I think what I said earlier applies all the more so, because there I'm exploring new territory. Um, I'm exploring the mental, the structure of the minds of these patients um, uh, which haven't yet been explored psychoanalytically. So um, it, it goes without saying that I'm doing much more self-consciously theory building, um, a scientific investigation, when I'm treating these patients than I am when I'm treating patients of a kind that, that thousands of analysts before me have treated um, we understand them a lot
0: better and so with people who's, who have organic damage mm. uh, in mm. fact many, of, uh, many psychoanalysts would say that psychoanalysis couldn't be used with them Yes well that depends again on your definition of psychoanalysis you see because uh, to
1: say psychoanalysis can't be used with these patients is to say psychoanalysis is a fixed and immutable set of tools and they work with some people and they don't work with other people to me psychoanalysis is a method of acquiring tools
0: so it's in what way then what how does it uh, you know in a way how does it influence your definition of psychoanalysis what is at the essence of its methods or its uh, you know its its, its discipline for me, psychoanalysis is um, an, an approach toward
1: the mind, which takes um, which takes as its starting point the subjective experience of the patient, and using the subjective experience of the patient as a as a as a sort of point of departure for trying to understand what lies behind that. Subjectively. So it's trying to find the structure of the subject. In other words, what are the things going on within the subjective life of this individual that I can learn through a a psychological interaction with them? What can I learn through forming a relationship with this person and trying to understand how the world is from from within them? Not only from their conscious perspective, but deeper behind their conscious perspective. What is the structure of their, of their subjectivity? What is the structure of this mental agent? And uh, that's a unique perspective. It's different from the neuroscientist's perspective, mm-hmm. which is looking not at the human being as a subject, but rather as an object looking at it looking at the human being as a
0: body as a thing in space so as a from a neuroscientist's perspective you're very aware that there is organic damage to the brain of this person and as a psychoanalyst you are focusing on this person's subjective experience yes and uh, forming a relation with them yes. and through that going beyond the the uh, the subjective experience. Yes, I try
1: to get to know the patient as a person. So I don't I don't look at the patient as a catalogue of symptoms and signs. I don't look at the patient as um, an example of this disease or that or, or that lesion. Rather, I look at the patient as a person, whose, expe- whose, whose experience has been altered by a particular etiological uh, agent, and then I try to understand in what way has their experience been altered. How is this patient experiencing the world? What, how can I explain the way that they're thinking, feeling, and behaving in terms of the structure, the unconscious structure, the internal structure of them of their selves, of their beings? And uh, there's a great deal that uh, you can learn about how the uh, that explains why the patient thinks, feels, and behaves the way they do from a psychoanalytical interaction with them that you would never learn from looking at their brains in a scanner. You know, the, this is the great um this is what makes the brain so special is it's an organ that you can also uh, get to know from the point of view of its subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, and uh, I think that we make a great mistake to, to ignore that, uh, to, to ignore that that side of the brain, which is what the psychoanalyst uh, g- can bring to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, so so you really um, relate to this person's experience. Yes. And uh, and in so doing, you're not seeing a damaged person, but just an experience. that's something where you form a relationship, and you have a way to uh, to to have some connection, some empathy. Yes, exactly the same as I would with any patient. Uh, the, the
1: starting point is that you you engaging with the patient in a process of trying to understand them, um, and that's through. Uh, primarily through spending time with them, where they talk to you about what they're experiencing, and uh, you then you then explore that experience with them through interpretations, through comments, uh, uh, seeking clarification, of putting to them what you think perhaps they're saying, which may enlighten them themselves about what it is um, you know that they ex- that they're thinking and and and, uh, and what, why it is that they're doing what they're doing. It's it's really the same as any other. For me, it's for me that's the essence of psychoanalysis. It's not, as I said earlier, it's not a set of techniques that we apply, but rather a mode of investigation of the mind, mm-hmm. which is where you you try to understand it through a subjective relationship with it.
0: So, is there are there different ways or some ways of um, uh, relating or investigating that you change as you work with different patients? Yes, uh, yes, but that applies
1: also in psychiatry
0: in general. You know, mm-hmm. there's a
1: technique that you can use with a, with a patient with a, a neurotic uh, a phobia or, uh, or an, a, a, a sexual inhibition who's otherwise a well functioning, um, uh, uh, intelligent, uh, uh, enculturated person. You would, you would be able to do a kind of analysis with such a pers- patient, which would be a very different sort of analysis that you would do with a patient who has a narcissistic uh, disorder or a, or a borderline um, organization. They won't co- 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 cooperate with you in the same way, uh, because the nature of their mental difficulties are such that they can't bear you lording it over them and knowing things and um, you know, being clever and uh, that makes them feel too awful. So to treat you as somebody who's got knowledge that they're turning to because they need something from you is an unbearable situation for such a patient. Mm -hmm. Finding when you try to interact with them and try to understand them um, in a a collaborative effort that you can't tells you something about how their mind works. And that's how we learned about narcissistic and borderline states, all the more so with psychotic patients. You can't do the same analytical technique with a psychotic patient that you can with a narcissistic one or with a neurotic one. Now, with these patients with neurological lesions, it's just exactly the same principle extended into a new clinical domain. You try whatever you have to do to be able to get the the best access you can to what's going on inside of that patient. Uh, and what the more that you understand what's going on inside them the more you're able to communicate with them them in a way that they can use yeah with a way that's beneficial to giving them understanding and therefore um, providing them with ways of managing their own um, emotional and and mental life uh, better
0: so and all the while um, there is that part of your mind and experience that is aware of um, uh, neurological research and, yes. and a different way of approaching the mind, the brain, people yes. from that perspective. Yes. but so
1: I say again, remember that in doing that with those neurological patients, I'm doing something which is no different from what the early analysts did with psychological patients. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a, because it's a new area, a new, new, new range of clinical phenomena, you have to explore it. And formulate hypotheses and formulate new theories as you're going along as to what's going on in those
0: patients. So, as you're in the middle of a session, um, the part of you that has an observing, self observing Mm. quality, do you find yourself going back and forth in some way between, say, the uh, neurological perspective and the relationship? Or are you? Do you have to be in a way so absorbed in the relationship in the moment uh, that the uh, back and forth would come only outside of the session? Um, is there, or is it even something where the dialogue between the two approaches is not possible? These are two different.
1: No, At no point do I think the dialogue between the two approaches is not possible As I say, I think that uh, that has always been the case When Freud started doing his first analyses He had a theory of how the mind works Which was derived from his neurological education That's Mm -hmm. where it all started So, um, and then you test those theories against what happens clinically in the room, and then you revise the theories. Now, of course, to a certain extent, you're revising the theory while you're busy doing the work, but to a much greater extent, you're revising the theory after you've done the work. You know, the reflecting upon what happened um, is something... That um, I think I do a lot more of with those patients than I do with with more typical psychoanalytic patients because there's more theoret- theoretical work that needs to be done. But I think that most of that theoretical reflection is done uh, in my own time um, when trying to write up um, a, f- a week's sessions uh, or trying to formulate for my for my own scientific purposes what on earth is going on, you know, here. But then once I've reached some new understanding, then that plays quite a big part in my subsequent sessions. Uh, then I start thinking, okay, now oh. I think I know what I'm dealing with here. Let me see. Um, and then in, for that period of the treatment, then uh, wh- while it's a process of discovery or a process of, 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 of uh, new formulation, um, then it do- dominates my thinking in the room with the patient more than it would otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, but um, I want to I want to move on from what I do with the neurological patients, if it's all right mm-hmm, with sure. you, to say that um, I think that the um, w- 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 when I work um, with ordinary analytical patients, the more typical analytical patients, um, I think that when I said that I approach them more like the early analysts did, um, it's, it, it refers to a certain mindset which is the mindset of a, of a scientist, the mindset of somebody who doesn't hold the theory to be a dogma uh, that has to be applied forevermore, but holds the theory as a provisional best best set of hypotheses that we have at this point in time. And I seek to, all, all the time to, to, um, to revise that theory in the light of what I've learned as a neuroscientist, because in the neurosciences of the last few decades... Unlike during most of the life of psychoanalysis during the 20th century you must remember in in um, from the early 1900s until the 1980s uh, roughly not a great deal happened in the neuroscience right. compared to what's happened since the 1980s I mean from the 1980s onwards there's been an absolute explosion of knowledge about how the mind works coming from neuroscience and uh, I think that if you accept what I said earlier That psychoanalysis is an application Of a theory of how the mind works mm-hmm. uh, t- uh, But it's a th- but it's a theory Which is subject to revision uh, Then you need to Accept that as we Get better theories about how the mind works So we're going to have to uh, Change what we do clinically uh, If the clinical work Is an application of the theory It goes without saying that therefore the clinical work Will change as our theory advances I think that um, there, ha- there are things that have been learnt In the neurosciences in the last few decades Which speak directly to our psychoanalytical theories um, Of, for example, memory um, Emotion, motivation, drives um, uh, Repression A great many things Early mental development
0: for Or a sense of a, that a lot of what happens in the mind Is not conscious
1: Yes, indeed um, and, and all of this uh, has such obvious relevance For psychoanalysis That I think that if you accept that psychoanalysis is the application of a theory clinically, mm-hmm. then you are obliged to take uh, to take cognizance of those developments mm-hmm. and to see how should you revise your theory in the light of them, and that in turn leads to how should you revise your your clinical technique in the light of them.
0: But maybe in a way, if you don't have an enormous amount of applications to have happened so far. Um, At the very least, what we could say is that by not making the the, uh, psychoanalytic approach invalid, they have confirmed it in lots of ways. That's true. Um, uh,
1: In the early early years of um, the development of this attempt to integrate neuroscientific knowledge with psychoanalysis, I think that most of what we have found has been consistent with psychoanalytical theory. So that obviously results in less change in our technique, Um, but not no change, because I'll tell you, um, speaking for myself, and I doubt that I'm unusual in this respect, that when there has been new evidence from an entirely different source of 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 methodology and and technology you know it's an entirely independent source of evidence about the mind from the neurosciences if we're led to the same conclusions as we were from the psychoanalytical method i feel much more secure in those yeah. conclusions and i think that too changes the way that we work um i think that um because psychoanalytical technique is an application of a theory, to the extent that that theory you feel more conviction in it, to that extent you're going to apply the From technique a different with more perspective?
0: Confidence. From a, yeah, that, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, my starting
1: point is the assumption that it's a purely scientific matter, that um, we need to take. Uh, what's been learned in the neurosciences about the structure and function of the mind and see how do we have to revise our psychoanalytical theory in the light of that. Because, secondly, it will will have consequences for technique. But firstly, it's just a purely scientific matter. And there I have to emphasize that it's not... It, my assumption is not because the neurosciences say it works like this, therefore we were wrong in psychoanalysis, right. but rather because the neurosciences say it works like this, that's incompatible with what we think, so now there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that I deal with that um, is to look on the psychoanalytical data, look, on, look upon what happens in the consulting room with questions in my mind as to, can I make better sense of this if the other theory is right? Mm-hmm. Would the other theory make better psychoanalytical sense? In other words, you know, can I make better sense of what ma- of what this patient's thinking, feeling, and doing, uh, if my hypothesis or my my my, my um, assumption as to what lies behind it is? what the neuroscientists say rather than what our early scientists
0: So it's a slow process, you know, it's not going to lead to radical changes overnight. Right. Has it, is it something where you've seen some, um, some of this uh, dialogue that back and forth mm-hmm. in the area of dreams where you've had of a strong interest?
1: Well, that's where it started. Historically, my own research in this area started with dreams. And um, just to remind you, before I started to work in that area, um, there was coming from the neurosciences a new theory of dreams, which mm-hmm. was radically incompatible yes. with the Freudian theory. Um, this was the theory associated with Alan Hobson and uh, the idea that dreams are generated from a very primitive brainstem structure during REM sleep every 90 minutes. It's automatic. It comes without meaning, without mind. Um, it's it's random. And... Um, So my own research in that area led me to the discovery that 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 neuroscientific theory was wrong, (laughs) that in fact dreams are are, are not um, um, generated from uh, the REM um, um, organizing brainstem, but rather from much higher structures which have everything to do with our emotional and and mental life, and in fact particularly to do with the uh, the appetites that Freud felt lay behind so much of of the dream work. And... um, so that's an example, my research in dreaming, uh, the brain mechanisms of dreaming is an example of what I was saying uh, earlier about the technique only becoming, uh, being applied with greater confidence rather than changed.
0: Yes. Uh, I, and I really, I, I... But actually vice versa, that from the theory mm. uh, you find a, a, a discovery of neuroscience that seems incompatible so you go back yeah. to... Re examine that it. way, re examining the
1: neuroscience. Yeah. That's right, it is very much a two way process. It's not, to my mind, the final court of appeal is not neuroscience. It's that we know two, we have two different sources of knowledge about how the mind works, and I want to use both of them because mm-hmm. why would you not want to use both of them if you've got two? Yes. why do you want to blind yourself? Um, so, um,
0: um so, in a way, this leads uh, to a discussion of you know what what is research, what is knowledge, what is science, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of um, in the uh, everyday world, a sense of true science is quantitative has uh, uh, you know has statistics mm. has uh, and uh, and there are other approaches to knowledge and to science are not necessarily that way mm. and well I, I think that each each approach to science and each
1: by approach you know i, I, I mean um, everything from from a from a concrete technique through 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 a, a, a relatively abstract paradigm or methodology um, you know the, the each approach has its strengths and its weaknesses. I, I don't i think that the approach the correct way to to deal with the multiplicity of approaches in science is to look for converging lines of evidence if things um are are compatible with each other, I feel that we're on the right sort of track. And I'm saying this not just as a general philosophical point, but rather specifically because in the case of the mind, we're dealing with something which is very difficult to study by many scientific techniques which rely upon quantification and experimental replicability. Mm -hmm. You can't do this with the life of the mind. It doesn't lend itself to those sorts of techniques. It's something which is invisible. It's something which is dynamic. It's something which is individual. Uh, it's fleeting it's it's fugitive you can't catch hold of it you can't replicate it you can't repeat it you can't experimentally manipulate it and um, i think it's uh, very much to the credit of psychoanalysis that it has that it has adjusted its 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 investigatory methods to the nature of the subject matter rather than to say well this subject matter we can't study so we're going to leave it out of account you know so um the I, d- I don't think the essence of science is quantification uh, or, or, or or measurement or experiment i think that that's, that that that's, uh, that way of doing science has great advantages mm-hmm. but it also has great disadvantages when applied to to mental life so um, the, one of the benefits of neuropsychoanalysis is that you take both sides right you know, you, you, we use methods which are not easily quantifiable, which, which, but which nevertheless uh, do proper justice to the nature of the subject matter of the mind. But then we, we uh, um, correct them or, or, or constrain them uh, by looking at the same things using the other methods too. Um, and uh, between the
0: two approaches we hope to come to more secure knowledge. Right, so the convergence and the, the idea of convergence is also uh, consistent with the idea of holding different approaches in your mind as opposed to having to settle for one and the approach of it being a discipline as opposed to being a yes. set of techniques so that uh, there's a sense of observing while holding different options, different yes. possibilities. Yes. I think
1: that that also is something which has a long tradition in psychoanalysis. If you only need to think of Freud's um, notion of of there being different points of view in metapsychology, there's an economic point of view, a dynamic point of view, a structural point of view, um, and uh, this is just adding an anatomical point of view. You know, it's right. uh, the stuff of the mind is so difficult to catch hold of. I think that it that it, it
0: sort of requires this kind of multidimensional. Um, approach. You also have the idea that uh, Freud, from being a doctor and interested in neurological uh, phenomena, is also somebody who was very interested in myths and uh, so things that very different approaches. That from the beginning of the approach. Exactly, I agree with that, um, and uh, you know that's that's
1: the. Um, the, the great tension in psychoanalysis, like Freud said in his early publications, that he, he was aware that what he was writing didn't have the serious stamp of science. It sounded more like short stories, um, but, uh, which embarrassed him. But then he said, but nevertheless, the nature of the subject matter seems to require it. Um, and I think that that was very much to his credit, that he was able to use the tools of, of the arts and the humanities
0: mm-hmm. uh, at
1: the same time as using the tools of the sciences, because the subject matter demanded it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, anyway, the, the having gone through a period of my own research where... Um, where uh, it was a matter of um, of, uh, affirming and confirming basic psychoanalytical theories uh, and and that altered my clinical work uh, only in the sense of making me have more conviction and more confidence in the the technique. And that's no small thing because it really does make a difference to how you approach a dream Mm -hmm. uh, in an analytical session uh, uh, if you believe that behind it there is an an unconscious Mm -hmm. wish. You know, it's a very different thing you're going to be doing yeah. um, than if you feel, well, you know, let's just see where this goes. Um, this must uh, tell me something about the mind of the patient. That's true, but it's a much more specific claim that Freud made, and I've, I, I now approach dreams with much more that expectation uh, in mind. But then there are things which um, are, are less um, uh, obviously uh, consistent with Freudian theory, and I think perhaps the most... the most um, uh, outstanding example of this kind is drive theory. Yep. Um, the, uh, um, the 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 nature, the classification, um, and the uh, and the nature of the drives was always a very uncertain part of Freud's um, uh, theory because. The drives are so very far removed from the surface, the conscious surface that you that you actually have access to in an analytical consulting room. It's the deepest layer of the mind. It's mm-hmm. the furthest away from consciousness, and it's um, you know, with all due respect to the psychoanalytical method, um, it's 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 not the most obvious way to go about trying to trying to discover and classify the basic biological forces at work in the in in the human uh, uh, organism yeah uh, nevertheless freud again to his credit recognized that we did have to formulate some hypotheses about what the basic driving forces were because they are just that the basic driving forces now when it comes to neuroscientific methods there's no special difficulty in in, in, underst- in with the methods we have available today. There's no special difficulty in studying the drives. It's a, very easy to study the drives, uh, especially if you think of what, how Freud conceptualized what a drive was. Mm-hmm. You know, it was. It was a measure of the demand made upon the mind to perform work by virtue of the connection between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to examine the connection between the mind and the body in an analytical session yep. um, with an ordinary neurotic patient. But neuroscientific methods study the body directly. And uh, neuropsychological methods, um, neurobehavioral methods, study directly the effects of the body on the mind. You know that's what the whole field is all about. And um, the you look at the um, at the effects uh, as can be done in, 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 in with in a great many different animal um, research methods um, of um, the various appetites. Uh, the various bodily needs uh, being uh, stimulated uh, or, or deprived uh, and uh, and seeing the effects uh, on the behavior of the animal and then understanding what the brain mechanisms are that mediate those those uh, effects um, are, are things which are easily accessible. So we've made enormous strides in neuroscience in, in understanding what the, what the basic brain mechanisms are of what Freud called drives and also sometimes called instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's an example of um, contradiction. Yeah, in what way? Well, Freud's view was that there are two drives. Um, that the one is a, an overarching a- appetitive drive An overarching mm-hmm. libidinal uh, erotic uh, drive You know, the different words that can be used for it But basically it's, it's got to do with desire um, with approach toward the object world in order to satisfy desires through pleasurable experience, um, and that then there's a second s- uh, set of drives which are uh, uh, which are uh, essentially destructive, obliterative, uh-huh. wishing to destroy, um, and that this gets directed outward toward the object world in the form of aggression. So there's a, they're, they're, they're basically only two drives, um, and they are. They are. You can you can you can you can uh, combine all the um, pleasurable pleasure-seeking tendencies under one heading, Mm -hmm. and you can combine all the destructive or negative or or, uh, or, or opposite tendencies under another heading. Now, the evidence emerging from the neurosciences is, first of all, that yes, indeed, there is one all-purpose pleasure-seeking object. Um, oriented um, drive a sort of overarching appetitive drive and that's very gratifying to find confirmation of Freud's very broad conception of, of a sexual drive what he calls libidinal or, or, or erotical sexual drive which is not sexual in the narrow sense right um, and you know, it's, it's startling to see that there is indeed such a brain mechanism and this is a, a very gratifyingly con, con, confirmatory but in the case um of, um, but I mean that's that's the only point of agreement. There seems to be um, um, under the uh, uh, aggressive drive a, a quite separate. There's a, an aggressive drive, an anger rage drive, um, which is quite separate from a a, a fear anxiety drive. It's mm-hmm. two separate systems. There's two different negative um, emotions, and also a panic or separation distress drive. Which is, is separate from the other two. Um, so the the the, the and these don't have a confluence within one system. You know, right. they they can't be reduced to one common denominator. They function entirely independently of each other.
0: Um, It's also important to recognize. So how would that, you know, is this something where um, that difference, is that something that would have implications at the level of, uh, at the clinical level? Uh, Or is this something that's an interesting point of theory that does not affect the clinical experience? No, it's the kind of thing that I um, was saying earlier when I say we have to look again
1: at our clinical experience in the light of that. Mm-hmm. If there is a system in the human mind, um, uh, 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 as there appears from the neuroscience to be, which is, which is um, responsible only for trepidatious anxiety, it's, yeah. not, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fear anxiety system. It can be overly strong. It can be overly weak in the individual, and that this is a basic one of the basic constituents of their mental life. It's a fundamental driving force in their mental life. Separate from that, there's another one which has to do with aggressivity and 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 anger. Um, and separate from that, there's one that has to do with with uh, with um, uh, uh, tendencies toward sadness or, or separation, distress or panic, then um, I think that you would look at the clinical material very differently. You would think you would somebody who has difficulties within one of those domains, you wouldn't be necessarily wanting to see how can you derive this from something else right. when in fact it is one of the fundamental ingredients. So, um, and I'm really uh, only touching the surface uh, here. You know, there also seems to be a drive for social dominance, mm-hmm. social hierarchy formation, which, which in childhood has to do with play, but in the older in the older animal has to do with with pecking order. You know, so competitiveness and deciding who's going to be on top and who's going to be on the bottom. And uh, th- this too is a relatively independent system. So where Freud uh, wanted to understand. Um, the conflicts, the dynamics uh, underlying psychopathology in terms of two fundamental forces and the incompatibilities between them. Uh, We seem to be dealing more with five, six or seven fundamental forces which can be in conflict with each other or incompatible with each other, one of which can be overdeveloped, another of which underdeveloped, um, given the genetic makeup of, of, of the individual, because it always... Was within the Freudian way of thinking that the drives are our are our inheritance. That mm-hmm. this is what's the it is what's given. Um, it's not something that's that's um, that's
0: individual uh, in relation to experience. It's so really, so then in effect it enriches the uh, clinical experience and the thinking about very the clinical so. experience it's because enri- you have an additional a question to yeah, uh, very much so now I, I would be I would be unfortunately
1: overstating it if I suggested to you that we now have a new drive theory in psychoanalysis but we're certainly in a phase I think of radically questioning our drive theory yeah. and looking again at uh, at our, those of us who, who are interested in this are looking again at our clinical material
0: uh, with, with with these other possibilities in mind. So how is this affecting your um, editing the works of uh, Freud? Oh, um, not at all. Um, I don't
1: think that that's, uh, that that's the correct. Um, just as Strachey, who was the, f- the, f- the earlier um, editor um, and translator of Freud's works, uh, tried to withhold his own theoretical opinions as far as possible and not burden the reader with, with his opinions. So, so too, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to. Um, I think that, um, the, the, The uh, only way in which my interest in this field has affected my um, my editing of Freud's works is that, first of all, it has made me not stop at 1900 or 1895, but rather go further back, and I've translated all of Freud's papers, including Mm -hmm. the early neuroscientific ones, Mm -hmm. because I think that we will better understand the early psychoanalytic papers if we see what they evolved from in Freud's own thinking. So I've added an extra four volumes um, to 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 the Freud's collected works uh, in, in English. When I say added, uh, in fact, um, I'm going to be publishing the first twenty-four volumes first, and then the, the, the additional four second, just okay. because uh, of time constraints.
0: Good. So um, as we're coming to the end of this uh, is there something that you would want to add either to wrap this up or to uh, talk about something that we haven't touched upon
1: Um, well uh, no I think that those are the essential points Um, I don't know how well I've been able to convey them because they might sound very abstract in places I think that the for me It all comes down to something really quite simple and straightforward, which is that we have to remember that psychoanalytical therapy um, is a, a way of treating patients which is derived from a theory of what's gone wrong in the mind, which in turn is derived from a theory of how the mind works. And uh, therefore, we should be putting an enormous amount of effort into making sure that we've got the right theory about how mm-hmm. the mind works. And therefore also um, any uh, advances in that theory must have consequences for our, for our therapy. And um, I only hope that um, the neuropsychoanalytic development will result in a more in more this type of, um, mindset among among my psychoanalytic colleagues. Um, I think that's the most important um, thing that we can do with neuropsychoanalysis yeah. is to influence psychoanalysis uh, in, in that way. It's not the only thing we can do. I think, and perhaps this is where I could end, is that I want to also. Um, emphasize um, as, as much as I possibly can, that that I see it as a two-way process. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's a great deal that neuroscience has to learn from psychoanalysis, yeah. and it has to do exactly the same things as I'm recommending uh, to my psychoanalytic colleagues that neuroscientists should also re-examine some of their assumptions and hypotheses about the mind in the light of what we've been able to learn uh, from a 100 years of psychoanalysis.
0: But also that it provides some kind of um, big meta-hypothesis to test. Yes. Instead of just looking from little points of exactly. detail, and micro-research mm. have some kind of a vision to uh, to validate or invalidate. No, I think that there's been a sufficient amount of micro-research in the neuroscience.
1: For there to now be the need to integrate all the little peppercorns into one mm-hmm. overarching picture, and um, I think that they're ready for it, that they want it. Mm-hmm. That's why we're now beginning to take seriously uh, into our sights in the neurosciences questions like the nature of the self, yeah. you know, which are enormously complicated psychological mm-hmm. questions, and um, I think that um, the. There is a great deal that psychoanalytical theory um, has to offer the neurosciences um, by by way of uh, at least a first a first set of hypotheses which can be tested using using the tools that neuroscientists have available um, so that it isn't just a a theoretical kind of um, shotgun approach mm-hmm. there is a kind of a and uh, you know. Um, I'm not alone in saying that. Uh, fortunately, we have a recent Nobel laureate um, in uh, medicine, uh, uh, Eric Kandel, saying exactly a major neuroscientist saying exactly that that psychoanalysis offers still the best framework of, of basic hypotheses about how the mind works, mm-hmm. um, which can be which can be utilized um, now um, in in in, uh, in the neuroscientific programs which are just just beginning.
0: Thanks, Mark. Okay, thank <laughs> you. This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.